Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal. And I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? Great. Beautiful day in the Ton, as Bono once called Edmonton. Uh, just a gorgeous day. Go biking, cycling today through Horlock Park. They're standing right at center ice of uh, of Rogers Place in December. What's what's that all about? Uh, I don't know. It's <laughs> popped up there. It's like my fanfare when I enter the room. That just appears behind me wherever oh, I go okay. now. Uh, no, you can you can fool around with the backdrops. And oh, okay. it's, I, I think people got tired of looking at my the the wall of my basement laundry room and the door. So I thought oh, I'll change it off. I'll put a little photo here. You've got quite an interesting though backdrop, Bruce. People can, if they're really curious about you, they can magnify the book titles and see what yeah. kind of books you're reading and um, think yeah, about the knickknacks. I'll give you a clue: hockey and baseball over that shoulder. Uh, astronomy and science over that shoulder. <laughs> nice. But nice. it's, uh, it's. Uh, I've noticed that ever since we turned into a Zoom world that all the people out there on the news networks and stuff, they seem to, they seem to have emulated my setup where they, they have always have these, these uh, backdrops of shelves and shelves of learned looking books uh, just to, you know, just to pump their own tires, eh? Like I'm this- doing. This is an awfully, uh, this is an awfully influential podcast. Podcast, Bruce. I suspect that you're correct. That they're looking for us. Next, they'll be shaving their heads or growing a beard. Who knows what they're going to do next to mimic us? The whole orange T-shirt thing might take off. All right. I'm getting slightly quiet volume for you from you, David. So oh, you are. I don't know okay. If something uh, at your end. But. Let me just. Uh, is that right? Um, let me just see. Yeah, it might be something at my end, but I got you turned up to 100%, and I can hear you fine. It's just not loud. Can so. you hear me now? Yeah. Uh, is that better? A little bit. Turned up so. Yeah. Okay, now can you, yeah. can you really hear me now? Yeah, it's throwing a little bit. I can hear you better. Okay. I think I just turned up your mic, actually. Oh, oh just okay. wait. External headphones, Yeti microphone. Okay, let me just, okay, did that change anything? Uh, not a lot. Okay, who knows? Play with it while, we, while we're chatting. Sure, hold call, turn off. Audio and video settings, let's see. Audio settings. I don't know, Bruce. All right, today we're going to talk about a few things. There's been a rumor, Patrick Kane to the Oilers, Bruce. We'll talk about that. Okay. I think what, what we are seeing pretty clearly with Phil Castle signing with Vegas, especially, which I think was a, was a, whatever you think of the Patrick Kane rumor, I think the Phil Castle to Edmonton rumor really had some, some mm-hmm. uh, half behind it and uh, was, a, was the real deal. He's off to Vegas. So I think with that falling through, kind of the major obvious moves that the Oilers might've made, um, you know, the whole trade pulley RV idea, trade Fogel idea. I think it's kind of out the window for, uh, till the till uh, the start of the regular season, or t- so. What we're seeing now is the team that Ken Holland is going to have uh, going into these going into uh, the regular season. So I think it's time to we we gave him kind of a preliminary mark mm-hmm. earlier in the summer. So I think we can give him a our kind of a 
you know, interim final grade subject to change if there's some massive thing that's nobody's expecting. We'll also talk about a few of the prospects that we've been writing about um, with the Edmonton Oilers. So how does that sound? Sure. Let's start it off with the Kane rumor, Bruce. I, and I want to start it off with, with before we talk about how likely this is, there was a price that was being talked for by uh, Bob Stoffer, gen- mostly on Oilers now. And the price was going to be either Fogel, Fogel or Pugliarvi, the Oilers' first-round draft pick this coming season, a B prospect, which sounded like someone like Samarukov or Niemalainen or DeHarnay um, was, was in that category, not one of the first-round picks. So it might have also been someone like Carter Savoy, let's say if Chicago had had a hankering for that player, but not one of the first picks like Holloway or Broberry or someone mm-hmm. like that. And a third round pick to involve another team to eat half the cap space out mm-hmm. of Chicago. If that was the price, and the orders could pay that price right now, Bruce, would you have made that trade? Me? Uh, no, I wouldn't make that trade. Not for one year of Patrick Kane. Like uh, the Oilers are, are entering what I see as at least a three-year window right now. They're building their team around a, a multi-year thrust at the cup. I mean, you could say it's a four-year window, and last year was the first year. Uh, uh, to uh, and I'll grant you that the first-round pick in 2023, a very deep and rich draft, apparently, uh, is probably not going to influence the team within that three-year window, but. Uh, uh, I, I'm I'm on board with keeping the first round pick most years, uh, but I'm uh, more to the point. I mean, it, it's it's way early to be making that kind of a commitment. That's maybe a trade deadline type of package um, that you put together when you know for sure what it is that you need. I mean, how do we know in August? that what the Oilers need is yet another high-end offensive player, of which they have at least two, uh, the very, very best, uh, and that they're not going to need uh, uh, shoring up at some other position, uh, or that the team that they already have maybe is going to be good enough that they don't need to be tinkering with it, uh, that they've got, uh, uh, you know, the, the team that they, that they put together is working. I mean, you don't know now uh, what you'll know six months from now in February leading to the deadline if your goaltending is holding up, uh, if your defense is all healthy, if there's any you know particular weak spot in the top four on your defense, for example. And to me, uh, Patrick Kane, who's a, you know, a wonderful player, don't get me wrong, uh, but he's, he's uh, in many respects a luxury. And I'm not sure that... Uh, um, he's a player that the orders need, but if he is, they're just as well getting him in February as they are in August, and they're, they're keeping their options open, keeping their powder dry, as my friend Lotai says, from uh, uh, from now until then. The benefit of doing it now is you get him for the full season, but um, mm-hmm. you're really getting him to win the Stanley Cup. Here, here's mm-hmm. my, there's a couple, of, I have a number of thoughts on this. It, first, mm-hmm. First of all, I think your comment that this is a luxury trade is is a is apt in that um, the Oilers have a brilliant power play already. And I don't off. really see well, you take Nuge off, yeah. I think. So I don't really see 
Kane is like McDavid. He needs the puck. He dominates the puck when he's on the ice. Mm-hmm. He's a soloist. He's a brilliant soloist. And I don't not denigrating either player by saying this. Like that's the height of in some ways it's the height of hockey dominance is to be able to dominate the game in a solo fashion. And McDavid and Kane can both do so. But on the power play, um, they already have McDavid mm-hmm. on that left half wall. Where are you going to put Kane? So uh, my, my point is, when it comes to his value, when, when you're evaluating value in the NHL, there's another team that doesn't have, there's 31 other teams that don't have Connor McDavid. They mm-hmm. will have more value for Patrick Kane than the Oilers have. They're going to want Patrick Kane that much more. So in, in the, when push comes to shove and there's actually a bidding war for Patrick Kane, I see mm-hmm. other teams outbidding the Edmonton Oilers for Patrick Kane. I don't think Patrick Kane will end up as an Edmonton Oiler mm-hmm. because a team like Toronto or um, – well, I'm not exactly sure because they have Marner, who's a similar kind of player as well. But there's other teams that don't have that power play guy who will dominate the power play, dominate the puck, who will put more value in Patrick Kane than the Oilers. The only way I see Kane coming to the Oilers is if Patrick Kane gives Chicago a trading list and it's got one team on it or two or three, maybe. Now that yeah. And that could happen, right? This happens. It happened with Duncan Keith. Happened with Keith. That's right. So it could happen. Patrick Kane could end up on the Oilers. I would make that trade for Patrick Kane. No. I think if they had made that trade at the last tra- trade deadline for Patrick Kane, the Oilers might have won the Cup this year. If you think about it, Bruce... Uh, and this happens, you know, it's because it turns out that's what they needed was when Drysdale got hurt, you know, that extra oomph on the attack could have made mm-hmm. a huge difference. It might have gotten them past L.A. a little quicker having Patrick Kane out there. So then maybe Drysdale doesn't get hurt in the playoffs. I just think he would have he would have amped up the Oilers this year's playoff run that much more um, and got them past L.A. quicker. I think they were going to be a better team than Calgary, it looks like, and then could have competed with the Avs. So there's a lot of ifs and muts. That's all what's maybe mm-hmm. that's all hypothetical. But I like I, I think listen, he's still a fantastic hockey player, both on the power play and at even strength. Right. Uh, on a line with Dreisidel and um Hyman probably, you know, that could really work. That would really work. You know, and then you'd either have Yamamoto or Pugliarvi on the top line with McDavid and Evander Kane. And um, I just think, wow, what a, what a offensive dynamic team that is. And and you know what? Colorado is stacked like that with great players. So we've got to beat Colorado. So I'm, I like the idea of trading for Patrick Kane, even if it's for one year, uh, because it's so hard to win the cup. Mm-hmm. The window's small. And mm-hmm. I don't think... You're giving up that much in terms of that window in that trade as compared to what you're getting back in Patrick Kane because he is a Hall of Fame player still playing at a Hall of Fame level. Yeah, well, you make a good point, though. The the Edmonton Oilers don't need to bring in Patrick Kane to run their power play. And there are other teams that could bring in Patrick Kane and immediately make him captain of their power play and be better for it. And so he probably does have more value to another team. And you can say, well, they just add even more offense to the Oilers that are already a good offensive group. But how much marginally more offense is there versus um, other issues that you could address in the in the lineup? Uh, I mean, I keep reading things that say, well, if the Oilers had Kane and McDavid, the other team would never have the puck. 
And I am sorry, David, I watched enough hockey over the years that not only would the other guys have the puck, they would have the puck with odd man rushes because stuff happens with highly creative players and not all of it is good. So, you know, there's, uh, uh, there's, there, there are arguments. I mean, the Pittsburgh Penguins, uh, when they won their back-to-back cups in 16 and 17, they had um, Sidney Crosby and uh, Gino Malkin running their top two lines at center. And then they brought in Phil Kessel, the aforementioned Phil Kessel, when he was young and hungry, uh, to uh, uh, play wing on the third line. And they wound up with sort of three overwhelming lines that the other teams couldn't couldn't stop. And I mean, that that is a theory, and it's been, it has been proven to work. Another theory is you can say, well, geez, uh, General Manager Slat says, gee, Coach Slats, where are you going to put Kent Nilsson if we get him in a trade? And Coach Slat says, well, I'm going to put him on the second line with Messier and Anderson and see how that works. And so, you know, that's a nice option too. Uh, but it's an expensive option. I mean, to to, to even that half, half retained, uh, the Oilers are so tough against the cap, they're going to have to, to give up probably two uh, salaried players uh, to make it work, uh, or else, as you say, um, involve a third team, give up yet more options, and still give up one salaried player uh, to make it work. And then, as I say, once you, once once you've done that, then you're really tying your hands for being able to do other things uh, later in the season. So, if I'm the Oilers, I I'm waiting. And if I'm Patrick Kane, and I understand this is likely the case, he's waiting. He's happy enough in Chicago. His parents drive in from Buffalo for every game. They were saying, uh, one source said that that knew him was saying it. And he wants to, if he goes somewhere, it's more likely to be somewhere well, within range of Buffalo where his parents live for, for one thing. Or he might just say, keep it until, you know, till the deadline. I'll move out and then next year I'll sign a contract back in the East. But either way, the long-term solution is not likely to be Edmonton for a uh, American-born superstar who's based in, uh, uh, you know, whose family is based in the East. So I, I, I just don't see it as a good fit. And I, I think he fits better with other teams. I mean, if I'm Carolina Hurricanes, I just lost Max Pacioretty's salary for the entire season and opened up a hole in the wing, but you know the guy's coming back for the playoffs, and I got cap space. I'm all over Patrick Kane. Yeah, I agree, Bruce. There's other teams that make more sense, and, you know, uh, the family issue may be a big issue, right? Like he'd have to essentially move to Edmonton, his father, if he wanted to see him play. Uh, but the Kent Nielsen comparison is is an enticing one, right? It's tantalizing. It's it it you know it's the, it's the great code of the Oilers. We're always trying to rebuild that team in Edmonton, and we're getting mm-hmm. darn close, Bruce. This team is getting darn close to that. They're missing a few pieces still, but um, they've got a few pieces. And I, you know, it's funny because people say, well, Kane would want to come to Edmonton and play with McDavid. I don't think they'd fit. I don't think that's a good fit at all. They're again, they're two players yeah. who both need the puck, dominate the, the puck. puck. It's like yeah. when people wanted to put Taylor Hall with McDavid. I always thought that was a bad idea. They, Hall was another guy who needed the puck. Drysaddle though and Kane could really work because Leon doesn't need the puck, and he's a you know he's he's a big, he's just a he's like he's a lot like Jonathan Taves as a player, except he's bigger, and maybe a better passer. Um, so <laughs> and shooter. And shooter, like he's a bit better offensively. Caves may be a bit a bit better defensively than Leon. Um, they're different defensive players. I'll put it that way. Uh, but uh, did you hear Leon's 
Dreisaitl's interview on... Uh, uh, he needs to get lazier. Yeah. <laughs> Move less. So, well, let's, yeah. let's do more by working less. And, uh, and he said, I was very interested in that. And I'm going, oh boy. But uh, cue the critics. But uh, uh, there, there's some actual wisdom in there. Work smarter, not harder. You know? Yeah. And he, he, works, was... he works pretty smart as it is. You can make the so, puck do a lot of work for you on the on yes. offense. It's on defense that you you got to move those feet, uh, and there's just no getting around it. Um, yeah. So anyway, we don't know how realistic the Kane talk was. I mean, Bob Stoffer is, I think, a genius at getting people to listen to his show. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's fair to say. And he's also he's also at the same time the most hooked in NHL insider in Edmonton by far. He knows more about what's going on with the Oilers. I mean, he works for the Oilers he, than he anyone else. Team, and, he, yeah. and he travels with the team. He's on the plane. He, he, he's, but he also is the, he's a complete and absolute hardworking guy. Like he's, mm-hmm. he's there all the time working hard and he's got contacts all over the league. And uh, so w- when he brings up a rumor like that and gets excited right. about it, yeah, there's radio uh, ratings to think about, but he, I mean, he it, there's also I'm sure he's heard there was some serious talk and Friedman actually said on his podcast that he was uh, thinking there might be that there was something to this as well. Oh, Friedman also Elliot Friedman also brought up the fact that the orders had been pursuing at one point John Klingberg, um, oh, yeah. who eventually. So that was interesting and, and I and it was, I mean, also a little befuddling because the Oilers have, of course, three right shot demon and Bouchard. CC and Tyson Berry. I don't know where John Klingberg would fit in, Bruce. Right. Um, he'd, you know, could one of them move over and play the other side, or would they? Would would this is, is that predicated on a trade of Tyson Berry? So my, would, my understanding is that um, uh, the the and I haven't heard the podcast, but I heard somebody summarize it uh, pretty lucidly. It seemed like, and that the thought was that Montreal would sign Klingberg. And then trade him and retain half of his salary, so that Edmonton wouldn't have to pay his whole cap hit. Montreal would would sign him and then trade him, while retaining. It's a very creative idea, and if Ken Holland came up with this idea, kudos to him just for just for thinking of it. And so they would be say sign Klingberg for eight million, and they retain four and send send the other four to Edmonton. And maybe Tyson Berry goes to Montreal and the other side of that trade, you see. And so they still have three right-shot defensemen. If they think uh, and they'd obviously have to include something else for Montreal to eat all that salary and for Edmonton presumably to be getting the better player in the trade. Uh, so they would have to, you know, include extra assets. And I would suggest more than one uh, for those considerations. Um, but... Um, uh, no one's ever pulled it's, off a trade like that in the NHL. I, I don't I think so. That's why I was impressed. I thought that's a real neat idea. I don't recall anyone ever legal? doing one quite like that before. Is well, I was legal? trying to think. When was the last time a team signed a player to a big money contract and traded him? Um, but, you know, I mean, Buffalo did with Taylor All. Like, they waited till the deadline and they traded him. But, I mean, it's, what's to stop a team from doing it the day after they sign the guy? I don't think there's anything space. saying they have to keep until Christmas. Especially if it's a one-year deal, that would have been an interesting trade. I, I mean, he's he yeah. is a, has been a pretty fantastic hockey player. So uh, you know, in terms of building the old 1980s Oilers, then you know, there's your Rahul Rutzalainen, and then you bring in Patrick Kane, and you've got Kent Nielsen. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, and here's the thing, David. The Oilers may well have won the 87th Stanley Cup without those guys, but they sure did help make the team even that much stronger. That line of Nielsen, Anderson, and Matthew. <laughs> Pretty good second guy. line, David. <laughs> Those guys would just fly. They were flying on this. It was magic. Mm-hmm. That line was really magic. I mean, Curry, Tikkanen, and, and uh, Gretzky was probably the best Oilers line I've ever seen. Yes. That's the second best. Yeah, they're line. on the same. That was the top six of that team. You know, like it was just absurd how. Uh, how did the how Flyers take were. them to seven games? Because the Flyers were a fantastic club that uh, wouldn't. Yeah. Wouldn't uh, wouldn't give up. I wrote a post about them, the team that wouldn't die. I called it, and I wrote about that series, which is probably the greatest Stanley Cup final series uh, uh, in the uh, last 50 years. It was it was something else. It's certainly the best one involving the Oilers. It went to full seven, and it had uh, had the two best teams in hockey by a long ways. Strangely, the most vivid cup run for me is 1990. Uh, It's the one that I just remember the best and the most. And it just had a big, I guess because it was so on a certain level unexpected. And the Winnipeg series, the first round win over Winnipeg was come from behind, was so great. Uh, You know, and Bill Ranford turning around, the kid line coming together, everything that came together on that team. uh, It just stands out for, for me the most of any of the Oilers teams. So Bruce, we were we were talking about. Um, so I think the orders, the latest from from uh, Bob on orders now is that uh, the orders are kind of done. They're, they might bring in a couple mm-hmm. more players. And Sam mm-hmm. Gagne's been mentioned, and probably another like a Thank depth you. defenseman. Yeah. So I th- it sounds like Ken Holland's work, whether he you know he he might have tried this and that. Maybe he was trying to move Yasapuliyarvi. It sounds like he was, but didn't happen. So it look it's looking to me like they are kind of settled heading into to camp at least and. Things may not change much before the regular season, so this could well be the team. And I think we can give this a more thorough roundup. I'll just quickly go through the lines as I see them. And and mm-hmm. not everyone's going to see the lines right now, but it, it, it gives a little starting point. Mm-hmm. So we have Vander Kane, McDavid, and Puliyarvi on the top line. Hyman, Drysaddle, and Yamamoto on the second line. Fogel, Nugent Hopkins, and Ryan, Derek Ryan on the third line. And either Janmark or Holloway and McLeod and Shore on the uh, fourth line. The defense pairings are Nurse and Cece, Bouchard and Kulak, and Broberry and Barry with Campbell and Skinner and Ned. Not a bad team, Bruce McCurdy. Not a bad team. No, not bad at all. I mean, a big big chunk of it is uh, players that are back from uh, uh, from last year. Uh, and, I mean, obviously the turnover in net, of which Skinner was a, a small part of last year's team, but... Uh, uh, Big change there, but five of the six defensemen who went on the playoff run are are back, and uh, relatively little change up front, really. I mean, uh, Matthias Janmark, uh, who you pencil in as a maybe, uh, I think there's still a little bit of a mismatch between left and right wing, so uh, we'll see how that works out, if they maybe move Hyman over, or if they... uh, uh, decide to uh, uh, put a lefty on uh, on right wing, or if they bring somebody somebody else in. Uh, but but the you know the basic lineup is uh, is pretty solid. Yeah, you know, some people will say the right wing position with Puliyarvi, Yamamoto, Ryan, and Shore is is a little underwhelming in their books. I mean, mm-hmm. I really like Puliyarvi and Yamamoto. I think you need that Maybe kind of too. blue player 
on top lines, and that's that's what they are. They're the you know the the Lindstrom Napier. Courtnell. The third wheel on the line, and correct. all you got to do is look at the salary cap structure to see that that is in fact the case. Yeah. So uh, I like Nugent Center now. Like I thought he did well mm-hmm. when he was there at the end of the year. So I'm I'm fine with that. The, the the one wild card you could see on right wing, like if they wanted to upgrade, and if this was the old Oilers, the Shirelli Oilers, Xavier Borgo might make the team. He's an yep. extremely skilled hockey player, mm-hmm. and he's a, he's he's. He's a little bit feisty too. Like I, I've noticed that he battles pretty hard on the boards. I don't think he'll make it though on Ken Holland's Oilers. Ken, Ho- uh, Ken Holland's Oilers, they go to the farm and they, they learn the, the business trade there. So I don't see that happening this year. The, the, you know, I could see Holloway if they can figure it out under the cap. Um, Dylan Holloway making the team if he's healthy and, and good to go. I mean, he's he's played half a year now in Bakersfield. He's um, two years of college. He's a he's a big, fast, aggressive forward. You could I could see him beating out, let's say, a, a Devon Shore um, for a lineup spot, and mm-hmm. um, being on the team in in that way. But they'd have to make figure out a way to make the money work. And other than that, we're just you know there's the de- debate about the seventh, who's going to be the seventh defenseman. But they have got a lot to pick between Nimalainen, and Deharnay and Samarukov. These are all players who aren't. 20 or 21 they've been pros for three or four or five six years some of them for the has been uh, well not that long but uh he because he was a college player for a long time but they're they're 25 24 four years so i think for the yeah so i like the bruce uh, this is the best oilers team clearly that we've seen in um well since 2006 probably since 1990 this is the best oilers team maybe you know since 98 heading into a season and I'm going to, for me with Ken Holland, you know, you could say, well, he got lucky or this or that with this lineup. I see a lot of Holland's trademark attributes, patience, patience, patience going into this lineup. And I really think it stands out with Pugliarvi still being on the roster. First of all, like welcoming him back, welcoming back to the Oilers. Um, a couple of years ago, yes. after the after that debacle, mm-hmm. um, with Kane, Evander Kane on this team, giving mm-hmm. him a chance, figuring out the negotiation, Kulak, the Kulak negotiation. I see some patience and smarts there. The CC trade. Um, I I this this is a very strong roster. If people had said two you know two years ago you're going to have Evander Kane and Zach Hyman on the wings. And, um, you know, you're going to, we wouldn't have been excited about Cody Cece and Brett Kulak on defense, but I, I think that speaks more to the, just the nature of the, de, the, why I'm excited about them is defensemen develop when they hit this age, that these guys are the golden age for defensemen. And these guys are both in it. And I think they're both going to really play well this year. I think uh, I'm increasingly oh. bullish. Maybe I'm just convincing myself guilty of motivated thinking with Kulak, but I just think, no, he's, he's. He's he's overripe to be a top four demon. He's finally ready to step into that role and excel in it, like Cece did last year. And I think that's what we're going to see. So, I love the roster. I think it's excellent. Yeah, well, to uh, to keep his roster mostly intact, and of course he's lost Duncan Keith and the five and a half million dollar cap hit. So that gave him some walking around money in the summer, and he spent basically all of the walking around money bringing back his own players. 
He'd already committed to a $3.6 million raise, uh, increase of the cap hit uh, from competitive viewpoint to Darnell Nurse. Uh, in bringing back Evander Kane uh, from last year's bargain basement, $2.1 million cap hit, gave him about a $3 million uh, upgrade. And then three other guys that got uh, their cap increases approximately tripled uh, and went up by around two million bucks. And that would be Poliarvi and Yamamoto, who both signed extensions, and Kulak, who of course also signed an extension. Uh, he got about a 50% increase from what he made last year, but when the orders got him from Montreal, Montreal retained half. So he was on a contract, he was on the payroll as a $900,000 player, and now he's a $2.7 million player. So you add all those uh, together and you're something like $11.5 million more in cap hit for the same five players. So yeah. about half of that came from Keith's retirement and the rest of it is going to come from some real uh, crunching at the corners. You know, they lost a couple of contracts they're happy to see. Uh, I think the last of, like uh, Kyle Turris, that opened up a little bit of space. Um, not a lot, but, you know, just $900,000. Um, and they're still at a point now where they're not in an entirely tenable position to open the season. So somehow, some way, the other shoe is going to drop. Either someone's going to go on IR to start the season, or they're going to have to move someone out, or they're going to have to do some real draconian stuff by cutting down to a 20-man roster and... I don't see that working in the long term because, you know, people do get hurt when the season starts. So he's not his summer is not over. I mean, he's also got to sign Ryan McLeod, but uh, uh, he's you know, in some ways waiting for the season to start. Uh, that that move about um, um, making the payroll fit under the cap that could literally come on the day before the season opens. McLeod hopefully gets done a little before that. Yeah, I just I think that's probably done. I'm guessing they're just waiting for something. The other sign of patience um, in this roster, Bruce, is um, in our cult of hockey uh, ranking system. Evan Bouchard um, was four years on our as a prospect after mm -hmm. being taken with a high draft pick. That's one of the first times the we've first. seen. <laughs> Yeah, maybe the first, because Clefbaum and Nurse were both three years. Right, so, on the list, um, yeah. Three years on the list. So it does take a little longer for a defenseman. But that's, it just really has made a difference, I think, in the career of Evan Bouchard and will make a difference in that he didn't get rushed like Justin Schultz did. Now, right. Schultz came in as an older player. Mm -hmm. um, so that has to be said. But I just think, you know, Bouchard wasn't, he, I mean, there was times he was played in the top pairing last year. And he really struggled. Um, if we're completely honest about that. So, but he just has been nurtured and put into positions where he can succeed. And when he didn't succeed, he was pulled back quickly. And I think it's going to help him take the next step. I think he did take the next step by the, by mm -hmm. the playoffs. He, he and Duncan Keith were a solid second pairing and um, he was a solid top four D man. And, and uh, we'll see where he goes from here. But um, so the patience was there. And now we see the same thing with Philip Broberry. This is his fourth mm -hmm. year. Yes. So we, we have, and it's a big secret where he's going to end up in the cult of hockey rankings. So everyone's mm -hmm. waiting for that. Somewhere near the top, yeah. Somewhere near the top. So this is his. He's been That's so far fifth, usual. fifth, second, and sec, fifth, second, and third. 
Broberry's been mm-hmm. rated, whereas Bouchard was first, 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 and first yes. each year. But, I mean, Broberry was a little lower, partly because uh, Bouchard was at the top. So we have this other, we have another really fine uh, prospect defenseman who, who mm-hmm. did very well in the AHL last year coming on board. And this is exciting. Like, this is one of the wild cards for the year. He, he and Holloway, these two players who have um, taken every step. Now, Holloway's been held back by an, an injury that set him back a full season. But uh, these are two players that have, they're big, they're fast, they're skilled. They're not the highest end attacking skill, but they're skilled. So they're going to change the uh, nature of the Oilers. And I'm, I'm really looking mm-hmm. forward to, uh, to Philip Broberry getting a chance this year. And, and again, Holland's patience, I think, is exhibited here with um, him. It's just one year longer than maybe other GMs would have waited to get them in the lineup. But, but that's what happened with both players. And I think it's going to help them. Yeah, and you're correct that the comparables for uh, Bouchard and Broberry uh, are Cliff uh, Baum and Nurse, and not guys like Nugent Hopkins, Yakupov, Drysaddle, McDavid, Pugliarvi, who each spent literally one summer on our prospects list because the next year they were in the NHL. But the defensemen, uh, even in the years that they were pushing the forwards right up and into the league, uh, they waited a couple of years for Clef, and they waited two, his last two years of junior for Nurse before getting him in there. And in the case of um, both um, Bouchard and Broberry, Holland's waiting still yet another year, their first year of pro, where they're still kind of bubbling under and they're not regular players on the team. And last year was Bouchard's second year in Edmonton, and he became a full-time player and has graduated from our list. That's where Broberry's going to go this year. I'd faint dead away if he was going to be back on our prospect list next summer. There's no chance that he's going to be an NHLer. I want to correct myself, Bruce. Clef, Bruce, Clef Baum was on our list four years. So he Three, was on, four. yeah, he was on four. He was on tw- starting in 2011. And right. that year he played in uh, Farjastad. Right. Uh, then he was on in 2012 13, which was the strike year. Lockout mm-hmm. year in the Lock NHL, right and he here. was again mm-hmm. in Farge's dad. Then the next year, he plays 48 games in AHL and 17 in the mm-hmm. NHL. That's his third right. year on the list. And then he, so he goes into this that summer, and we put him on the list again. And he ended up playing 60 games in Edmonton and nine in uh, Bakersfield okay. that season. And I, it could be yeah. the same with Broberry. That's this where year. Broberry is right now. Yeah, well, he will play about level 60. with Clefbaum. Yeah, all he may. The way end, along. Yeah, he may end up playing a few games in Bakersfield, seeing how it goes. But Clefbaum stepped up and was pretty good and by 2016-17 Oscar Kleffbaum was becoming one of the best left shot defensemen in the NHL before he got injured so I guess he was always battling that that shoulder injury a little bit Just happened, but. and he didn't have uh, he was making a lower quality defense core than the Oilers sport right now yeah so um, that was under McTavish the last little bit there he, it's interesting in the AHL, Broberry has better numbers, scoring numbers than Clefbaum did in um, the, that same three years after draft season. Um, considerably better, like triple mm-hmm. or double. Like it's hard to tell. It's, you know, power four. play mostly. Yeah. Maybe Clefbaum didn't get that opportunity. Maybe they had Brad. Until we got to Edmonton and the number one power play in the National Hockey League. Go figure. Yeah. They had. Don't always develop in straight lines. Well, they had, and Todd Nelson's been criticized for this. They had Brad Hunt in in um, in uh, in Oklahoma City. It was then 
and he played. He got 50 points in 66 games. Brad Hunt did, so he was playing ahead of Clefbaum on the power play. And was that the right move um, in terms of development? No, probably not. It would have been better to have Clefbaum there. But no, anyway. Brad Hunt still in the NHL, man. He uh, he, he is a lot of he is. Didn't he sign with Colorado? He signed with this summer with a with a good team, and and he was with uh, Vegas. He, you know, he's a little little guy with great offensive skill. So he's played I Edmonton. They had him tagged for the right uh, for the right um, role position, the right yeah. role. Yeah, I mean, he was like he was to Oklahoma City what uh, Tory Krug was to Boston Bruins. You know. Yeah. Uh, so he's he's played uh, Hunt has played in Edmonton, St. Louis, Nashville, Vegas, Minnesota for three seasons in Vancouver, so far, and and he's played 241 regular season games in the NHL. So good for him. I was never a huge Brad Hunt fan because, man, that guy struggled on defense. But um, he's got a little he's got an NHL career he, going. He was Mark Andre Bergeron to put him in the Edmonton light. That was the kind of player that. Uh, Brad Hunt was. So, Bruce, we're still uh, digging into these prospects. Yes, Colorado Avalanche. He signed with for 2023 Stanley Cup champs. Um, Well, there you go. There you go. It's funny because they have got all kinds of players like him. You know, they've got, you know, Devon Taves, they've got Makar. They've not like him, but of that style, you know, the Mm -hmm. offensive. I like moving the puck. Byram, maybe they like really like moving that puck, and maybe Brad Hunt. Again, Brad Hunt. When I last saw him, a lot was 24, 25. Maybe he's really learned to play defense. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's he's maybe he's become solid in that regard, and um, could be a more valuable player at this point. Um, Bruce, so we're writing about the prospects, and uh, since we last talked, we've written about uh, okay, uh, I. We talked about Munzenberger, but we've all, so we, we we haven't talked about uh, Noah Philp, who was number fifteen on our list. Let me just see here. Call it up. Fanti, Fanti was no. 15. Fanti was fourteen. I did fight at sixteen, fourteen, and twelve. Philp, okay, Philp, Tulio, Philp, Tulio, Fanti, and Kesselring at thirteen, the latest one. Um, I just. Uh, with the forwards, Tulio and Philp, the interesting thing about the forward group on the, the this Edmonton Oilers prospect list is I think the focus on skilled wingers, skilled forwards, forwards who can maybe one day fit in with McDavid or Dreisaitl. And the Oilers are loading up with this kind of winger again and again and again in the draft. And um, I think in the hopes that one of them or two of them when they can't, let's say, afford, you know, let's say it comes up, they can't afford Kyler Yamamoto or Yessa Pugliarvi anymore. I think the hope is that they will have then someone who can just slot right in. It maybe, you know, the most obvious player is Xavier Borgo. And um, so I, I look, Bruce, at the kind of the, um, the ones who played major junior hockey. So this excludes like uh, Carter Savoy or... Um, um, Holloway, for instance, who didn't play major yeah. junior. I looked at their 19-year-old scoring seasons, how they did when they were 19 years old. Mm-hmm. And it was it was interesting to see 
So when you look at since the year 2000, the wingers uh, drafted by the orders out of major junior, the top scorer by far in his 19-year-old season was Rob Shrimp. 2.5 points per game as a 19-year-old in major junior. Like they just this just unreal level of scoring. Next was Math, mm-hmm. Matthew Lombardi, uh, two points per game. Jordan mm-hmm. Everly, 1.9 points per game. And then Borgo this year, who clocked in at 1.7 uh, points nice. per game. So Borgo's right up there uh, with Everly. Um, very close, little to choose between the two. Then you have uh, Tr- Vyacheslav Trukno, who was a very smooth skating player but never really even made it as an AHLer as yeah. in a big way. 1.7, like Borgo. Uh, Leon Dreisaitl, 1.7. Um, Marc-Antoine Pouliot, 1.6. Kyler Yamamoto, 1.6. Raphael mm-hmm. Lavoie, 1.5. Jarrett Stoll, 1.4. Kyle Brodziak, 1.3. And then we come to Ty Tulio, 1.3. So um, there's three players who are fairly high up there, Borgo, Lavoie, and Tulio. And again, this doesn't include p- people like uh, Carter Savoy and uh, Dylan Holloway, who didn't play major junior. But I, I, they don't need all of them to turn out, Bruce. They don't need all of them to turn out. But it would sure be great if uh, if one or two of them did. Yeah, well, they can certainly come at them with numbers. Uh, yeah. There, there's, no, there's no shortage of them. Uh, uh, just before I get to that, just to put your... Um, their points per game into perspective. Sometimes a lot of it has to do with circumstances. Sure does. And Robbie Shrimp played on the all all world London Knights team of 2004-05, where they had players on the team who would have been in the NHL had there been an NHL in 2004-05, but it was locked out. And that was a team that had Corey Perry uh, as the net front terror on their power play and Robbie Shrimp running things from the boards and, Danny Sivret, uh, uh pumping them in from the blue line. And they, you know, they just had all the pieces and they were an un- invincible machine that went on uh, to blow away not just the OHL, but the uh, entire country. They, I remember Sidney Crosby's team losing 4 nothing in the Memorial Cup final to those guys. And it was, you know, it was a one-sided game. And speaking of Sidney Crosby, well, uh, Marc-Antoine Pouliot was on Sid's line in his 19-year-old season. You think that's going to push your numbers a little bit? Whereas... It would. Whereas Ty Julio had nobody. In his 19-year-old season, Leon Dreisaitl had Dakota Conroy on one wing, and I think it was Colin Valcourt on the other. You know, big, big hockey names there, right? So, I mean, he did have Josh Morrissey as the only other sort of high-level player was second on that team in scoring by a long way as a defenseman. And Leon had fantastic chemistry with Morrissey. That was something to watch. But it was, uh, uh, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of so those 19-year-old seasons, you, you need to, I mean, the raw numbers are fine, but then you got to sort of say, well, why did he do this well or this poorly? And sometimes there are underlying reasons that really, really uh, change the statistical narrative. Bruce, I think you had a little with Shrimp. He wasn't on those London Knights with Savret and Perry. He, he, well, maybe he did earlier in his career, but maybe in his draft year. But in the in the 145 point season in 57 games, I just called that up. It's Dave Bol, like Dave Boland, an NHLer, was on the team. Is that uh, 0506 then? 
No, it's uh, his 145-point season is 2005. Yeah, 2005-06. Yeah, Dave right. Boland, Dylan Hunter, Sergei Kostitsin oh. uh, were the main scorers on that team. Who still was and, a wicked power play. He oh, got like sure. half or more of his points on the power play, and they were running like 40% or something. It was ridiculous. Nobody could yeah. stop him. And, I mean, they were ridiculous in large part because Robbie Shrimp was phenomenal on the power play. He couldn't, like, he was the weirdest skating player I've ever seen. Like, when he came up to the NHL, I remember seeing him. Because before I was on the internet and debating people, like, there was, you know, the, the Oilers blogs. And I never quite understood this debate. But there was a huge debate around Rob Shrimp mm-hmm. on the Oilagosphere, as it was called then. And I don't know who loved Shrimp and who hated Shrimp. But there was a real <laughs> debate between the Shrimp backers, like, you know, like, why aren't they giving this guy a chance? It, we've seen this debate a hundred times since then. And I know with Yakupov and now Pugliarvi, it's like endless, right? Where people, there's these Same factions. Same as it ever was. But Shrimp, there was this massive debate. <laughs> and I don't know who the characters were uh, who were backing Shrimp and thinking uh-huh. Shrimp was going to be a great player. But some, I think the people who really believe in the points per game thing out of Major Junior were, were obviously probably yeah. pretty excited about the guy. But he only ever became a, a fairly, even a fairly marginal um, AHL player. Robbie Shrimp. Let me just have a look here. Um, he yeah, he, a bit with the Islanders, and then he when he went to Europe, which is kind of where it seemed like he was destined all along. Now he's a kind of a skills coach, like he's a hockey fanatic, mm-hmm. and he's yeah. he's heavily into uh, hockey skills. So um, you know, and he could obviously he had a great hockey mind because he could really pick teams apart with his passing. But in the NHL, mm-hmm. that skating just kind of crushed him a little bit. Yeah, so uh, I this this the prospect group at forward Bruce um, this year. Now Matt V. Petrov is another really interesting yeah. one. He has yet to play his 19-year-old season. Yeah. Um, uh, Borgo was drafted in the same year, but Borgo is kind of a year, almost a year older than than Petrov. Um, or six. Yeah, he's a late per, He's a late. Yeah, he's, so he's turning pro this year for sure. Petrov, the Oilers actually have an option with him. Uh, unlike most juniors who have to stay in junior or else graduate to the NHL directly, in the case of Petrov, he was drafted out of Russia. So because he wasn't drafted out of the CHL, the Oilers do not have to loan him back to uh, uh, North Bay is it, in the CHL. Uh, they can loan him wherever they want. So they can they could send him to the AHL if they think he's peaked in the in the. Oh, uh, no, he CHL. says he's... They do have the option. I don't think they'll use it because I think they got too many young wingers already that to, to introduce another one just doesn't make sense. I think they're they're smart. Have they had did they have they specifically said I haven't. I read. think I think I heard an interview with Petrov where he talked specifically about going back to major junior and that being a yeah. really good idea. He thinks he needs that yeah. and that's okay. the decision. So. But he had a fantastic uh, scoring season as an 18-year-old, in his 18-year-old season. So we'll see what he does as a 19-year-old. A lot Again, like you say, a lot will depend on his line mates and who he's out there with. And Nicky will obviously be on the power play. But, man, that pick, um, which the Oilers got from, was it the mate? Where, there's something about that pick that you keep bringing up. Uh, Toronto, the wouldn't, Toronto wouldn't accept the, the pick as payment oh, for, that's right. for signing Zach Hyman to an eighth-year contract and then trading it for... Yeah, as compensation. So the Oilers wound up keeping the pick, signing Zach Hyman to a seven-year deal, and then using the pick to draft Matt Vey Petrov, who now looks like a real prospect and who I sincerely hope scores a hat trick in his first visit to Toronto in the NHL. <laughs> I like that. It's one of the. It's on. That's on the list of the 
the great Bruce McCurdy grudges. <laughs> and uh, they and now and then they pop up, and this is one of them. And I, and I I'm glad though. I'm glad the trade didn't work out. I'd rather have Petrov. I think they can work around the four hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is for Hyman. At this point, Petrov. At this point, I mean, the way Petrov played in Major Junior, um, <laughs> it's pretty darn exciting. I mean, that was one hell of a year he had as an 18 year old. You know, a Russian kid coming over for his first year in North America, different culture, all those things going on, and he just crushes it. So, 40 yeah. goals and 50 assists. Yeah, pretty darn tootin' good. So he's on the list of, uh, the, as I call them, the young guns. Mm-hmm. The young guns. Borgo, Jake Chason, uh, Dylan Holloway, Raphael Lavoie, Matt V. Petrov, Carter Savoy, Ty Tulio, and you might even include Noah Philp. What, what do you, how do you see Philp, Bruce? You, you wrote about him. What, what do you think about him as a prospect? Uh, he's a wild card, you know. Um, uh, there's so so few players that uh, come out of the CIS these days. They really ever did. There was, you know, there was a little burst of them in the 80s, uh, in the early days of the uh, uh, that the orders were in the NHL. That uh, guys like Randy Gregg and Don Spring and Dave Heinmarsh, just to name three, that came out of U Alberta. Um, uh, made the jump into the NHL, but it's become rarer and rarer. And the Oilers have uh, the Oilers already have one uh, in the form of Derek Ryan. You know, you want to talk about Bob Stoffer being influential? Well, Bob was uh, uh, was jonesing for uh, Derek Ryan for a good three or four years there before the Oilers finally relented and went out and signed him. Uh, but uh, Derek Ryan is a terrific uh, underdog makes good story. But guess what? It was five years between him graduating U of Alberta and making the NHL, four in Europe and one in the AHL. So Philp has gone directly to the AHL. I'm not saying he's Ryan, but there are things in common with them statistically in terms of uh, how the level they scored at uh, in both in major junior and then NCIS hockey, mind you, 12 years apart, but uh, generally fairly, fairly stable leagues. And, uh, uh, there's things that he's like they're not comparable as players. Philp is way bigger, and he's uh, uh, maybe you know not a not a darter like uh, Ryan is, but more uh, a swooper. You know he's got uh, uh, he's got reach and, and uh, leverage on his side, and some pretty good defensive chops. Uh, in the post that I wrote, I, I included a well nice scouting report from Bruce Kerlock, who watched him quite a bit in the. Uh, games that he played in the AHL at the end of the season. He got some games in after he signed. And um, uh, he he picked out some clips that included uh, not just some good work in the offensive zone, but some good defensive coverage. And, and there was one in particular that was he came back hard on the back check to break up a potential breakaway and wound up taking the puck the other way and setting up a goal at the, at the good end. You just have to watch that clip and say, well, that's a player of interest just based on that that one sequence alone. You know, like he's got some game. He's uh, 23, I think, turning 24 relatively uh, soon in the season. Uh, he scored a goal in the game in the CIS last year. How does that translate into the AHL? Who knows? Uh, he's got a one-year ELC because of how old he was when he signed it. And so they're just basically rolling the dice and seeing how he performs. But so he's, to me, a wild card, but uh, he can play center. And maybe with all these wingers that we're talking about, possibly Dylan Holloway, possibly Xavier Borgo, 
uh, Carter Savoy, uh, Raphael Lavoie, uh, Ty Tulio, maybe Phil points up playing center because they got so many wings. So he's at least got that option that he's a natural center. So there's uh, all bets are off. I mean, we, we rank him at number 16, but it's just really a wild-ass guess. He could be anywhere on that list. It's fascinating. Like, there's a, there's, it, when you look at prospects, there's always a, a tendency to, to have ex- excitement around the prospects and hope. And, uh, you know, and I think that's fair. Like, these are all individuals. And that, so, but I've been doing this rather sobering exercise, kind of compiling lists, going mm-hmm. back and looking at the Oilers, like looking at the top 20 players ranked in yep. these lists for the, since 2007, which is the first time I can find one of these lists. So the first five years, the list comes from Low Tide's blog because he was the only one doing a list at that point. And then the, and starting, I think, about 2011 or 2012, the Cult of Hockey, we, mm-hmm. we start our list. And it was first, it was you and Jonathan Willis. And then I joined in. And then Kurt Levins and Jim Matheson have been, uh, we've all been working on it in the last three or four years. Um, it's very sobering, Bruce. Very sobering to look at some of these lists and the and to re- recall the optimism and excitement around the players on the list. And I'll just give you one example. Here's the 2010 list for forwards. Number one, Taylor, number one, number one, Taylor Hall, number two, Jordan Eberle, number three, Magnus Pajarvi, number uh, sixth ranked out of 20, Curtis Hamilton, number seventh was Tyler Pitlick, number eighth, uh, Linus Omark, number ninth, Anton Lander, number 13, Ryan Martindale, and number 14, Chris Vandeveld. So I just remember just their super amount of excitement in among Oilers fans including myself about this list of players and I mean Taylor Hall did win a a MVP award but it's their careers with the Oilers all of them um none of them panned out with the Oilers the way we would have hoped I think it's fair to say not one of them um and uh it's just tough you just never know how it's going to work out so uh, on this current list my point is if one of them does pan out, mm-hmm. that's huge. Mm-hmm. With this group of players, and this group of players includes Dylan Holloway and Xavier Bargo, um, who are kind of in the Eberly class, Pyarvi class as prospects. If one right. of them, if one of them turns out mm-hmm. and can help it in, in a top six role, maybe another one becomes a, a, a third, a useful third or fourth line players. This will be a successful list for the Edmonton Oilers, but what we have to hope is that's what that's what happens. And I don't know why though. I don't know why it didn't turn out for more of these 2010 players. A lot of them became okay NHLers, uh, mm-hmm. like Pitlick and Vandeveld. Both had NHL careers. Have had NHL mm-hmm. careers. Yep. But uh, not in Edmonton. Ever- Everly panned out. He, he delivered a lot he of did. good seasons for Edmonton, and then he's delivered a few more for New York Islanders after they traded him originally for value. Um, and so, you know, yeah, uh, what he did kind of, um, yeah, just yeah. got traded and which is, you know, a little frustrating in the end. What went sideways? That 2010 list was the uh, list of hope with yeah. Paul Omark, uh, Pajarvi and Everly with an extra helping of Hamilton and Pitlick. If you want more H and P in your hope and, uh, the trouble was they were all wingers, 
all those guys were wound up being wingers, and they, they, they didn't have centers to build them. And building a team around the wings, the one thing we learned from that 2010 list, it's not how you want to build your team with wings. You know, you need some you need some center of the ice players, not just centers, but D-men and, and uh, you know, a, a sort of depth throughout. And the, the Oilers, all of their young stars from that second rebuild, I guess you could call it, uh, happened to be wingers, and it was not a it was not a uh, uh, a strategy that worked out. Here's another list, Bruce. This is the 2007 list. Okay. Okay. And uh, so it starts with Sam Gagne, yeah. number one, Andrew Cogliano, number two, Rob Schremp, number five, Cal Brodziak, number six, Riley Nash, number seventh, Vyacheslav. Trukno, number eight, Liam Redox, number 13, and Colin McDonald, number 15. So again, you know, I just remember the um, incredible optimism, which I shared about Sam Gagne and Andrew Cogliano um, coming, and some people would have had it for Shrimp as well. And then Brodziak came in and impressed a lot of us people, you know, and then the, what, the, you know, Riley Nash refusing to sign here. So yeah, there's a lot, there's always a lot of hope and optimism, but Often the results just don't come through for a team. That Oilers organization was um, in the Steve Tambellini era was, mm-hmm. was was off kilter in some way, Bruce. It was it was not very functional. Well, in uh, '07 they didn't have an AHL team. Yeah, they paid the price for that uh, oversight for some years after that, in my opinion. Could well be the case. So moving on to the defenseman, the the, the list this year. Uh, and we're not, you know, we, we've yet to run through where they're going to be finally ranked, but the list includes Brobury, DeHarnay, Kemp, Kesselring, Munzenberger, Niemalainen, and Samarukov in the top 20. And w- when I was looking at that list, what I wrote about Kesselring today, and Kesselring had a had an okay year, his 22-year-old season in the AHL, his uh, first year on his entry-level contract. Um, he got COVID and it set him back. Uh, like I think similarly to Pugliarvi, I think some COVID hit some people harder mm-hmm. than others. Sure. And I think Kesselringer was on the harder end of it and it set him back. So um, kind of a sideways year for him. But what struck me, Bruce, is with with these big defensemen, and again, most of them are not going to turn out. You know, the Oilers have a long history of drafting big defensemen that we've all had lots of hopes in, like like Martin Marinson and Martin Gernat and Ziet Pygan and... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those are just three examples who who haven't turned out uh, necessarily, you know, the right. way we hoped at least. Now, this this year, we've got a, there's a whole truckload of them. There's a whole truckload of them. There's DeHarnay and Kesselring, Kemp, Munsonberger, Niemalainen. It's interesting, Niemalainen and, both Niemalainen and DeHarnay were taken, I it, it was the 2016 draft. Mm-hmm. The 2016 draft. They were kind of on the William Loggison development path being on this list a long long time the slow train but it strikes me and i haven't done a survey on this but Mm -hmm. big players i just think big players can often take longer to develop and big defensemen especially so i there's still i think uh one of these again if one of these guys uh deharney camp kesselring munzenberger niemalainen or samarukov can become a bought a solid really solid bottom pairing defenseman on a team that can go deep in the Stanley Cup playoffs, or if two of them can, mm-hmm. that's huge success. I mean, that would represent real success. And they're all battling it out now, and they're all kind of, 
you know, it's going to be when they're 24, 25, 26, I think that they'll finally rise to an NHL job. But we, we may see it this year with one of them, with Nima Line in, in particular, I think, having the inside edge because he played in Edmonton last year and acquitted himself well. Um, we might see one of these from the big boys brigade, as I like to call them, uh, graduating to Edmonton. But we none of them might make it is, is the other the other fact of the matter. Like we've seen it before with lists of defensemen that look good at the time and none of them made it. So one one real positive with this list is that all those guys you were just talking about have uh, had extensive training under Jay Woodcroft and Dave Manson at the AHL level. So it's yeah. not like they're coming up to an NHL team and nobody knows who the hell they are, where they came from, or what they're capable of doing. Uh, and I, I think that's a huge advantage for both the player involved and the coaching staff to have that uh, to have that experience working together. You know, as they were all working their way up from the uh, from the minor leagues, and well, the coaches the coaches didn't quite get here first, but they got here ahead of some of those guys, but. It's not like they're going to be going into training camp this year and have no idea who Vince DeHarney is. They, they know very well who he is and they have an idea what kind of path that he's on and uh, uh, what uh, he needs to work on and, you know, the whole the whole thing. And, and the same really goes for any of them. I, I, to me, rather than Nima Linen, I think just because of the uh, uh, logistics of, the, of how things work in the NHL, I think Dmitry Samorikov, uh, should be and likely will be the first in line as uh, even the seventh defenseman that gets you know in and out of the lineup uh, because he uh, stands alone among all those guys in that he can no longer clear waivers or he's he's no longer waiver exempt. He would have to clear waivers yeah. to get sent down. Whereas uh, uh, even Nimalainen, who played in the NHL last year, uh, he still has some exemption that that comes down to a choice between the two of them in, in uh, October. I think Samorikov wins just uh, on the basis of, uh, you know, if they look at Samorikov first and he fails, they can call Niemelainen up. They look at Niemelainen first and he fails, and in the meantime, they've lost Samorikov on waivers. Now they got nobody to call up, you know, so it just makes sense. And they, they did the same thing last year with Tyler Benson, originally over Ryan McLeod, who got sent down because he didn't require waivers. And, uh, Guys like Benson and Perlini did. So guess what? Those guys stayed with the NHL club and McLeod had to wait his turn. A patient, rational approach um, from from Holland. Oh. Like, I, I agree. I think it's most likely they want to they'll, they'll want to see Samarukov in 20 games, 15, 20 games and then decide. Right. And I just want to uh, see him in the third period of a game. <laughs> After what happened. Oh, that poor guy. Did he ever have a rough start? That was brutal. Poor guy. I mean, this trust to do it. Well, I went to the one rookie game, the first rookie game of the of the season against Calgary, and I went there specifically to watch Dmitry Smarkov's every shift. And I did, all one of them. He stepped up to hit a guy in the neutral zone in the first shift of the game, basically hit hit him with his face and broke his cheekbone, orbital bone. Some bad luck. Yeah, so he just the season had a brutal start, had a brutal finish with an injury, and it may be that he's just one of these guys, you know, Oscar Kleppbaum, Doug Lynch, you know, one of these guys is good enough, but just his body won't hold it together for him. Did he or get injured at the end? 
he did. He missed the last all the playoffs, and then he hurt the other shoulder from the opposite one that he hurt in the KHL the year before. So he's had sort of three significant injuries in a season and a half. So that's that's his Achilles heel. Uh, I think as a player, he's got a whole lot of tools, and I'd love to see him, you know, just get a chance to play a few games and and just play. Apparently, see those tools at the NHL level. Yeah, when he got healthy in the AHL last year, apparently he was really good. And we saw him play in the KHL. We saw a number of his games, and he was really, yep. really good. He was so steady. And, yeah, yeah. so hard for an, a, a young player. He had three major injuries. Just mm-hmm. bam, bam, bam. Like, it's just yeah. got to get you down and um, set you back significantly. How? How? I wonder how bad. Did he need surgery on this last one? I guess uh. It was, yeah, it was before the end of the season and whatever. I mean, he's apparently ready to go now for camp, but uh, I can't recall if there was a specific procedure involved or if it was just a, you know, he was done and he had to, uh, you know, wait to come back the following season. But he's had two season-ending injuries and what amounted to a season-starting injury in the last year and a bit, so... It's, uh, it's either horrible luck or else he's just made out of glass, in which case he'll get hurt again and that'll be that. So hopefully, uh, like I say, it'd be nice to at least see what he can do. And It's a rough, tough game. Uh, pro hockey. Mm-hmm. It is a rough game. Hockey is not for cowards, as Anatoly Tarasov liked to say quite accurately. Alrighty, Bruce. Any parting thoughts or uh, anything else you'd like to add? Or yeah, uh, Ryan Fanti. I wrote about him, uh, the young goalie, the prospect that they call they signed out of U.S. College. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I had a good look at his at his record, what he was able to do last year in University of Minnesota Duluth. And he had, a, he had a very strong year. He played on a club that it wasn't a high-scoring team. It wasn't a particularly good team. They were uh, fifth-seeded in the 18 con- conference going into the playoffs. Uh, but he had he had really, you know, solid numbers all year long. He had the best goals against and save percentage uh, in the NHCH, NCHC, whatever it is in the... Oh. <laughs> That uh, that part of the country, I get some of these acronyms, uh, especially in U.S. college, mixed up. But uh, uh, then come the playoffs, uh, he went on this super hot roll, posting three consecutive shutouts and sudden death elimination games. He shut out three teams in a row to end their seasons and then finally got beaten in the quarterfinals uh, on a goal by uh, Carter Savoy in a 2-1 loss in the in the uh, uh, conference finals, and so in the meantime, uh, uh, UMD had won a uh, had won the conference from the fifth seed, and and uh, uh, he'd made a very strong impression. Stop! I think he stopped over 100 shots in a row at one point, and so uh, uh, just an interesting tale. Like he he he's a late blooming goalie which is kind of what you expect when you sign a free agent out of college. It's someone who wasn't, hadn't made enough of an impression to even get drafted when he was 18, 19, 20 years old. And uh, he got cut at his own team level in Thunder Bay. And then he wound up moving down the coast into uh, uh, Minnesota to play his developmental hockey and then uh, on to university there. And, and uh, 
again, a wild card. Uh, but a player apparently had was pursued by more than one NHL team, and the order, but the orders quickly won. Like he signed two days after uh, they got eliminated, and already he'd signed with Edmonton. And he himself said, you know, I think this is the best fit for me by far, and I like his chances of uh, of winning a regular job in Bakersfield this year. And then let's see, you know, he'll, he'll uh, team up with uh, Calvin Pickard, a nice, you know, veteran goalie that's been around, uh, you know, mentor him a little bit. And, you know, the kid himself is 22, coming 23, and just, you know, beginning to show what kind of goalie that he might be. And there's, uh, I had a look into that whole class of goaltenders, undrafted players that came out of U.S. college ranks, and there were some pretty good ones that Oilers fans would know, like Curtis Joseph and uh, Dwayne Rolison Cam and Cam Talbot, the one, the active one with the best numbers. And, uh, uh, there, you know, there's been uh, uh, the odd sort of gem that comes from that route, and all you can do is cross your fingers and hope that uh, – this is the one. They had a guy a few years ago look promising, Shane Sterrett, and then he got injured, and that was, you know, his whole career got derailed by injuries after he's really starting to show signs of uh, being good. And then he got hurt, and that was uh, that. Well, hopefully Ryan Fante doesn't get hurt, and he just continues to come on as a goalie and makes himself part of the picture. I mean, obviously you just you, you grow your depth by whatever means you can, and every. Once in a while, one in five or one in ten or one in twenty guys works out for you. You know, it's, it's uh, you got to get you know got to keep uh, rolling them dice and uh, hoping that one of them comes up uh, boxcars. Um, my final comment is that the Bakersfield has hired a couple of assistant coaches, Josh Green. I think this is the Josh Green who played with the Oilers for two a stints few games. with the Oilers. Yeah, and he also played in big, Finland. Big Josh Green, yeah. He played all over the place. Uh, mm-hmm. He had 341 NHL games, big forward. Huge and, winger, yeah. Yeah, and Keith McCambridge, who's an interesting guy. He he played in uh, Western Hockey League, he was, and he was always, always, always low-scoring, shut-down, D-man, really physical, you can tell from his penalty totals. Mm-hmm. So it's like they've, they've taken, replaced Dave Manson with a different, a, a, you know, Dave Manson was, of course, a much more offensive hockey player. Than McCambridge ever was, but they've they've got the, a guy who clearly knows some of the dark arts of defense, uh, teaching the defensemen down there in uh, Bakersfield this year. So, good luck to those coaches and those players. I heard uh, an interview with McCambridge. And, I was impressed uh, with the guy. Yeah, I thought. Yeah, it sounded sounded good. It sounded like he, he had a sensible approach to things, and you know, it's, his experience was, uh, uh, as you say, you're. It's, playing the specific type of defense, but uh, uh, I'm sure things, even if you have a sort of deeply defensive-oriented coach teaching offensive players, that he can impart some wisdom that can help those uh, other guys. And if he's teaching a guy like Marcus Niemelainen, well, you know, he might be looking at his doppelganger for all we know, right? And as we know, uh, again, hearkening back to the glory era, you can have a, a coach who used to be a total uh, grinder, who never could, who had a hard time scoring, and he can become the greatest offensive coach in NHL history. That's Glenn Sather. So, um, you know, just because a player is a certain way doesn't mean as a, he's going to be that way as a coach. He he might just 
totally be a great uh, enamored with offensive play and a great skills coach and a great offensive mind uh, for for uh, pro hockey. Right. We just we don't know. But I, huh? yeah. Anyway, uh, Josh Green, he was he ended his uh, North American career as the captain of the Oklahoma City Barons, uh, with whom he played his last uh, two years, uh, while also getting a little bit of time in Edmonton. And then he went over to Finland for four years and ended his pro career as the captain of Cuckoo in the uh, Finnish league. Not to be confused with Slater Cuckoo, but uh, uh, he uh, uh, he was a great big, like 6'4", uh, forward. And he, he always waited for the guy to pop, and he never really did. But uh, he was, a, you know, okay depth tweener kind of player, for sure. And, and he'll have a ton of experience to... Uh, to pass along to those young bucks and some of it will be riding the buses in the minor leagues because he did some of that himself that's one guy we never talk about is slater cuckoo um mm -hmm. you know who will be in the running for the seventh defenseman job on the oilers i don't even know if heck is even on my Oilers depth chart i might have even uh no he is i have nurse kulak broberry nimalainen cuckoo and samarukov that might need some reordering all right bruce let's leave it uh all right Let's leave it there. Thanks for talking today. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. <laughs>